Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 143 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. And my brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Classic. Hi. Very good. Dylan has really put the pressure on where he does a joke every time. Andrew's got himself in a zone where he does a joke some of the time. So if he doesn't feel like it today, that's okay. Dylan. Every time. You played yourself. I only have like three minutes total speaking time. All right, that's enough. That's enough. That's enough. (laughs) Yeah, no, let's let's cut him off now. Guys, it feels so good to record with enough sleep. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. Are you just a whole new man? I, I am a whole new man. I'm a whole new Scotsman, whatever you want to be. <laughs> Has your opinion about Outlander changed at all, or you still feel the same? I still feel the same. Sorry. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, we had some uh, feedback on Instagram. The people were saying, I love Outlander, but I can't argue with any of Andrew's points. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So, I mean. Well, that's, that's pretty high praise then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of listener feedback, we got this gift in the mail, a Christmas what? gift from one of our listeners. Really? Yep. It, this it's is a, the first time hearing about this. Well, it was addressed to me, so it could just be for me. But oh, wow. then I, I thanked listener slash my friend Lindsay, and she's like, oh, yeah, it's for the to read list. <gasps> Dylan's drinking out of it. It's a mug. It's called Literary Cats, and it has pictures of cats, and they all have quotes from famous writers about cats. That in is it. such a beautiful mug, and it's going to be so sad when we cut it into three pieces so that we can <laughs> each have part of it. Why not four pieces? You get the handle. No, Dylan. <laughs> you and Bailey share everything as a married couple. I think we should cut it vertically or like, you know, actually horizontally across it so that I can wear it as a bracelet. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Is this just a test to see who likes the mug the most that will protest against it? <laughs> <laughs> Says the man cradling it in both hands, drinking coffee out of it. <laughs> oh, another listener feedback. So after the last episode, mm-hmm. I put it to Instagram. Do you guys think that I should be able to get rid of these three books that I don't want to read anymore? Mm-hmm. Were mm-hmm. they kinder or crueler than we were? Here's the thing. There was a resounding answer. Oh, no. And the resounding answer was, Bailey, get rid of those books. <gasps> well, that's why democracy doesn't happen on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say that's why democracy doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you look at the post, you can see the comments and almost all of them, except a few were like, well, I think you're supposed to read them. But Bailey has gerrymandered somehow on this on this Instagram poll. And I did a poll. Seventy six percent of people said, yes, you should get rid of them. I'm so sorry. I think 81 percent is the percent you need Mm, for a consensus, according to the to read list bylaws of that 76 percent or uh, sorry, of the 24 percent of people that voted no. One of them was Dylan and one of them was Andrew. So I feel like that doesn't count. <laughs> well, how many times did I respond to the poll by saying no? I think it was five well, or six. <laughs> no. Well, you responded to the poll saying no, and then you texted me no five times. <laughs> mm, yeah, see, that'll that'll screw with your margin. It's true. The issue is no one has ever agreed that these Instagram folks have power over what you actually have to do. Only your conceit for the podcast you created dictates that, which is that you have to read all the books you bought. I was thinking that. Like, it comes down to just me, like, letting go of my own like guilt and just Mm -hmm. being okay with it but then i got hung up on there were a lot of people not a lot maybe three or four who voted yes get rid of them but then said except for maybe that one (laughs) Uh, like for example they were like oh well i i did really like m train so maybe you should keep that one uh, or like i hear every zadie smith novel is different so you should probably give that one which zadie smith do you have left swing time Ooh. Yeah, so, <laughs> I love saying that. That ooh noise is a person as a person who loves Zadie Smith. Yeah, so I will just say my intention is to give away these books and put them in the little free library. But I have a feeling that my guilt is going to take over. Well, 
guys, you're listening to the last ever episode of the Two Read List. I hope you've enjoyed it. <laughs> and just know, Bailey, if you give away any of those books, I'm giving them to you for Christmas. So <laughs> your choice. One of them is one you have given me for Christmas. Like it was a gift from you, like maybe four years ago. Yeah, M Train, right? Yeah. Yeah, you better read it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of a Christmas time and Christmas presents, Happy Hanukkah, everybody! I want to say Happy Hanukkah, and uh, I think it's also Christmas today. 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 Okay. Well, Merry Christmas as well. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have any Christmas book traditions? Hmm. Oh, I have one. Oh, let's hear okay. it. Um, I shop for Bailey by exclusively using her Goodreads <laughs> to read list and buy things off of it. And it's very nice. convenient. I have to say, I mean, obviously we're recording this ahead of Christmas because otherwise, you know, it wouldn't be able to come out on Christmas. Yeah. I am nervous. I'm nervous for the number of books I'm about to get. Yeah, you're about to get a lengthier to read list. You're almost certainly going to top 150. Yeah. Oh, no. I just remembered I do have a bit of a, a Christmas tradition. Uh, in terms of gift giving, where I basically I am like the book giver now. Mm-hmm. I don't give my family books. I only give them once a year. I give them all one book that I very carefully curate. Mm-hmm. I put a lot of thought into it. I'm very careful about it. And I think that they appreciate it. But there's a small part of my soul that is very paranoid that they're like, my gosh, like another book. Like they, but I, I really try. I really try and give a good book. And I think they have said like they really love the books I give them. But you know what it's like. You don't want to be that annoying person who just gives books because it's like, I don't want to be just giving homework. Well, when people give you a book that you haven't specifically asked for, it it's usually, a risk. yeah, it doesn't necessarily go to the top of the pile because it's not one you thought of for yourself. But the fact that but it's Bailey, only one book that you curated. And my recommendations are pretty good. I know. Yeah. You're pretty good at, at knowing what people like and knowing mm-hmm. different genres. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. They all get Brandon Sanderson. That's right. <laughs> Well, the only tradition I have besides receiving these books from Andrew is one that I intend to do in the future with our future children. Uh, We went on our honeymoon to Iceland and we were there around Christmas. And in Iceland, they do a thing called the book flood on Christmas Eve. Have Hmm. you heard about this? No, I have not heard of the Icelandic book flood. It's adorable. Okay, so on Christmas Eve, everyone gets given a book. And when it's time to go to bed, everyone goes to bed and reads their book until they fall asleep. Book flood. Book flood. (laughs) That's very sweet. What is the flood? What's the flood part? Because it's a flood of books. I don't know if one book per family members. I literally pictured like the child stands in the middle of the room and you dump a box of books on them or something (laughs) like that's a flood. There's like a book leak. A lot of it is the, it's like the biggest book selling day of the year or like. puddle. Is this like a lot of other (laughs) Icelandic traditions in that if someone is not given a book, a cat eats them? (laughs) Yeah. That's specifically the Yule Cat, which Yule Cat, yeah. is, is from Icelandic tradition. And it's if you're not given new clothes on Christmas, the Yule Cat will eat you. Oh, it's not even based on like your own actions. Someone no, has no. to give you clothes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if people could just band together and say, we're not giving any clothes to Joel this year. <laughs> or, or it's also like someone just like was really bitter one year. They're like, you know what? You didn't get me that suit I wanted. And now the Yule cat that everybody knows about is going to eat me. <laughs> And it became a hallowed tradition. That's how it starts. Mm. Yeah. So we intend, I intend, Dylan, you're hearing about this now. <laughs> I approve. <laughs> to do the book flood with our kids. And so I'm just imagine like me going to bed with the new Gillian Flynn book. And Dylan has his book about World War II. And Ooh. our kids have like hop on pop or whatever. These kids are 16 and 17 years old. <laughs> Excellent. Gillian Flynn could switch the kids' books. You don't know. And the dear sweet rat was murdered. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hop on pop. 
pop expired. <laughs> I don't the know. That was terrible. That would be the girl who hopped on pop. The, the girl, girl who hopped, hopped on pop. <laughs> yes. Okay. Anyway, that, Ooh, that signals the time. Fun. We should probably get into the main episode. <laughs> okay. Well, this week, Toby had a book to review off his shelf. Toby, which book did you read? I read Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. Excellent. I love um, this book. Yeah. So I'm going to give you, it's not a log line because uh, this book is bigger than a log line. Ooh. Lincoln and the Bardo is an experimental novel by current literature darling George Saunders. The novel is based on the true events surrounding the death of Abraham Lincoln's 11-year-old son, Willie, and a story that while Willie's body was stored in a nearby mausoleum, Lincoln visited several times. Most of the novel is told from the perspective of several characters that inhabit the bardo, a liminal space between death and rebirth alluded to in Tibetan religious texts. These characters observe Lincoln's visit to his son's body and have various reactions to them. Would you say that sums it up? Yeah. Ghostly characters. Ghostly characters. So the first thing, I had this thought today. I kind of had to finish it today, (laughs) but it was fine. Uh, And kind of a compliment and the thing that I feel, if you're a loyal listener... This will give you some information about this book. I think this book is similar in scope and audacity and what it tries to cover to East of Eden, but it is so much shorter and so much better. Ooh, okay. Bold. Sorry, Steinbeck. Yeah. (laughs) I will also say I have a kind of like a encouragement slash warning for those who want to read this book. It gives you nothing in terms of an easy way in. You are thrown into it. It's a kind of complex world that you have to figure out. Even that thing that I told you in my log line is not explained to you what the bardo is mm-hmm. the fact that some of these characters are living or existing in the bardo none of that is given to you um, and I found it I tried to listen to it a couple years ago on audible and found it too frustrating I just could not get a grip on what was happening it's a very difficult book to understand uh, from the beginning and he doesn't give you many clues that said part of the pleasure of the book is figuring out what's going on mm-hmm. it's like not quite like solving a mystery but really putting the puzzle pieces together and it's an enjoyable experience George Saunders also wrote a book of short stories called 10th of December. Um, I'd put that up in my top five short story books of all time. Um, Incredible, incredible book of short stories. That is on my list. It's great. I love that book. Oh, yeah. I mean, I will call it right now. That'll be a five-star book for you. Was it five stars for you, Bailey? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Bold. Um, So his stories, if you read them, he has this incredible talent to make you care so deeply and connect incredibly deeply with the characters in such a short period of time and to tell these deeply moving stories that only are like 20 pages at the maximum, 30 pages. Mm -hmm. And he does that a lot in this book where you are, there's an overarching plot, but the characters that inhabit the Bardo, which is uh, a space between death and rebirth, it's basically the cemetery where Willie's body is residing. And all these spirits inhabit this space, the cemetery, and they're spirits who have chosen to remain in this space instead of doing what they should do, which is pass on. You get the short story feel because it's a lot of really intense, really human stories told very rapidly one after another. Mm-hmm. This is his first novel, right? I believe it is his first novel. He's primarily a short story writer. Right. It is his first first novel, yes. A lot of the touches that I love from 10th of December are in here too, and that is the just the the cojones he has to really go for it. The style is incredibly strong, and there's a lot of supernatural elements to this story. We're dealing with characters that have died, and they are refusing to acknowledge their death, and they all kind of take these spirit forms that kind of reflect what they were obsessed with, kind of what their unfinished business, so to speak, mm-hmm. is on Earth. There's a woman. There's a woman who appears surrounded by three glowing orbs that contain images of her daughters and is quite sad that sometimes they 
weigh down on her and crush her, and sometimes they disappear and she hunts them down. Um, there's a man who committed suicide and at the last moment before he died realized how beautiful the world was, and he is represented as covered with eyes and noses and ears because he wants to sense something more about his life. It's it's so fantastic and it's so well portrayed. It's amazing. It's And it's so bizarre, but it just... It's lovely, and I loved it. So like East of Eden, this book is tackling gigantic themes. We're talking about death and the loss of a child. We're talking about the responsibility of being the president of the United States at the time of the biggest crisis our nation has ever faced and how those two things dovetail. I loved it because it tackled all these things in a way where East of Eden, to me, was very explicit. You know, we had these characters sit around a table. I think this, I think this, I think this. Oh, he's right about that. <laughs> and it ends like that. Whereas <laughs> here, it's, you know, all these swirling emotions. And I will say Saunders does definitely present a point of view. He does seem to indicate a way forward, but the reader is much more doing the work themselves to get there. Mm -hmm. They're kind of observing these swirling emotions and thoughts and bringing their own meaning out of them, which I enjoy a whole lot more. And I like Saunders' uh, philosophical approach to life more. So Yeah, that sounds nice. It seems like, it, it, like you say, it's more in your hands versus the author being like, this is the answer and I'm giving a mouthpiece to myself That's through exactly this character. That's exactly right, yeah. yeah. Although to be fair, they're both giving, they're both you know yeah, creating no, it's, mouthpieces. It's, it's just, just a that different way. Saunders's mouthpiece is prettier. Yeah, <laughs> um, more metaphorical. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that being said, like this is just I can't even describe to you how powerful and gorgeous of a writer he is without being absurd. He's just great. Mm -hmm. Like I, want, I can't even talk about it that much because there's no way to touch it. He's a, he's like one of the master stylists of our generation. I agree. Um, I cried at the end of this book. I cried at multiple points in this book. Aww. This book is incredible. What was different about it this time? Because last time you couldn't get into it. That's a great question. Yeah. What happened this time is I was forced to push past the really, really confusing to me beginning. Okay. This book at the beginning to you might seem fractured beyond comprehension. It has 110 different narrators. It is experimental in the fact that it's all like short little bits tagged on by little dialogue tags. It's mm -hmm. a weird book. There are a lot of chapters that are all they are are tiny sentences clipped out of historical references. So it can be very disorienting, and it can appear through the first third that there's no plot, really. But once you get past that, there is a plot, and it's actually quite gripping, and the stakes are very high, it's very exciting. So that's the thing is I got past that first third, I really committed to it, and it's definitely worth the effort. Quick question, Toby. When you say there mm -hmm. are 110 narrators, is that an exact number or are you like guessing? I think it's exact only because I think uh, somebody said on Audible there's 110 narrators, oh, wow. which correspond to the 110 either fictional characters or historical sources. David Sedaris, Nick Offerman, and George Saunders, if you listen to the audiobook, they are the three main ghosts. So they're like the three yeah. main narrators. And then everyone else is like a random. Well, there's like Lena Dunham does a character. Keegan-Michael Key. I mm -hmm. think Megan Mullally does one. Yep. Yeah. But when you're listening to it, that sounds intimidating. But it's not intimidating when you listen to it. I will say it was intimidating to me. So oh. I, I want I want to caution people. Like I, So I read and listened to this mm -hmm. because I had to get it done. And I started off really not liking the audiobook because mm -hmm. it can be disorienting. There are chapters, especially with historical sources, where it'll be one line, then the source. Yeah. Then one line, then the source, which is which was really grating to me at the beginning. But it, you get used to it. And the end, as the sources have come to all be named, then they just do a little tag where it says opposite, which means already cited. 
So it's much faster in the end. Maybe this would be a good one to literally listen and read at the same time. Like to have Maybe. it in yeah. your I've ear while you're that. reading it. I've never tried that. I do that sometimes. But yeah, I mean, I've basically covered the whole thing. This is incredible. The audiobook is amazing once you get into the, the groove of it, but it's very intimate. It was for me, it was so intimidating to make me not listen to it the first time I tried it. It's intimidating, but it's a feat of audiobook production. Oh, yeah. Like absolutely. it's amazing what they did. Yeah. But yeah, five stars. Keep it on my shelf. Awesome. I love, love, love this book. I can't wait to read something else by it. I am so happy about that, Toby, because this was a book I really loved that I thought you would really like. And I remember mm. you being like, no, I tried it. I don't like it. But yeah. now this is a case where doing the podcast, you end yeah. up liking it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. Five stars. Andrew, do you have any facts? I have some Saunders facts. Would you like to hear them? Yes. All right. So George Saunders was born on December 2nd, 1958 in Amarillo, Texas. He grew up just outside of Chicago. It might surprise you that he went to the Colorado School of Mines to get a Bachelor's of Science in Geophysical Engineering. Whoa. Yeah, which he completed before later going to Syracuse University to get a master's in creative writing. However, after he completed those two, he primarily worked with his first degree, working for environmental engineering companies as a technical writer and a geophysical engineer, as well as working on an oil exploration crew in Indonesia. Whoa, cool. Yeah. And you know who was his foreman in Indonesia? Joyce Carol Oates. While at Syracuse, he met Paula Reddick, who he then married. Uh, They were engaged in three weeks, which he believes is a record for the creative writing department. Um, Wow. Wow. Yeah. For the creative writing department. He (laughs) keeps it very specific. Not for the philosophy department. Yeah, those pillows philosophers. They're engaged (laughs) willy-nilly. He began publishing short stories uh, while he was doing his school of mining work. I don't know exactly what you call that. Uh, mining. <laughs> mining? His, his science stuff. Um, he began publishing short stories and winning awards. Um, in 1996, he published Civil War Land in Bad Decline, which was a collection of short stories and a novella, which had already mostly appeared in magazines at that point, from The New Yorker to pretty much anywhere. And then in 1997, he left behind the old mining world and joined Syracuse's faculty uh, and still teaches in their master's program. He's won many awards in his career, including a Guggenheim Fellowship and a MacArthur Genius Grant. Lincoln and the Bardo recently won the Man Booker Prize in 2017. Another weird fact about him is he once wrote an essay for Chipotle called A Two-Minute Note to the Future, which I couldn't tell if it was published on the brown paper bags or was somehow about the brown paper bags. The description I found of it was not very specific. But yeah, turning the focus back to... This book, To Lincoln and the Bardo, he actually mulled the premise of this book for 20 years before actually writing it. This is via the Smithsonian, confusingly using a quote from The Guardian. The idea came to him in the 1990s during a trip to Washington, D.C. A cousin of Saunders' wife pointed out Willie Lincoln's crypt in the historic Oak Hill Cemetery and told Saunders that the president used to visit the cemetery to hold his son's body. Though Lincoln did frequent the crypt, there's no evidence to suggest he ever held the dead boy, as National Portrait Gallery senior historian David C. Ward points out. But Saunders was captured by the story. This is quoting George Saunders. An image spontaneously leapt into my mind, a melding of the Lincoln Memorial and La Pieta. I carried that image around for the next 20 odd years, too scared to try something that seemed so profound. And then finally, in 2012, noticing that I wasn't getting any younger, not wanting to be the guy whose own gravestone would read, afraid to embark on scary artistic project he desperately longed to attempt, decided to take a run at it. And those are the facts I found. We'll have another chance to dig deeper on him whenever 10th of December gets drawn for me. But I feel like that's a good place to end for today. Awesome. Nice. Good facts. So Bailey, did you have to read any sad and funny books? Uh, 
Mm-hmm. I did have to read a book. I don't know that I would qualify it as sad or funny. Well, Ooh. then well, maybe we funny. might as well stop this podcast. All right. Yes, I did read a book this week. I read Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. Ooh. Ooh. Beep, beep, beep. It's one of those books that came out and everybody was reading it and into it. And I guess maybe I was in grad school when it came out because somehow it, it missed me. <laughs> and now I'm catching up with it. That's I'm the excited. most highfalutin excuse I've ever heard. I was in to- grad school <laughs> at the time. I, I was working know. in the mines in Indonesia. <laughs> I was in the Oasis. That's a Ready Player One joke. I know that. I've read this book. <laughs> so is Dylan, I believe. Yeah. I actually know that because I read Dylan's copy of this book back when we lived together before Bailey. Um, first of all, for those of you who have not read the book or have not seen the Steven Spielberg movie that came out a few years ago, it's about uh, a teenage boy named Wade Watts. And we're in the, I would say, near distant future in a very realistic world uh, where famine and disease have run rampant over the earth and so everyone escapes through virtual reality and the virtual reality world is called the oasis and it's created by this guy holiday and the conceit of the book is that holiday dies he puts an easter egg hunt inside his virtual reality game and whoever beats it gets billions of dollars and control of his company and so wade watts is looking for the eggs the easter eggs and it follows him and he happens to be the first person to get on the scoreboard and so he becomes a target of the evil corporation. I would add also that all the video games and all of the references, it's funny because it's supposed to be like a near future, but somehow this video game designer and this world designer loves everything from the 80s. Yes, that's a big part of it that like this guy, Halliday, he's a little bit socially awkward and I guess he just is trapped in his childhood, which is the 1980s. So all of the references, all of his clues have to do with 1980s movies or shows or music. Yeah, things from like the very common like Indiana Jones to the very obscure like video games that I certainly wasn't familiar with. Right. And so in that way, it is kind of like, hmm. It it is like just sort of a geek's fantasy Mm -hmm. of like, someday my knowledge of Monty Python and the Holy Grail is going to become in handy to the fact where I can save the world Mm -hmm. or like by beating this Atari game, I can say I can be better than the entire world. Um, it's kind of kind of cute, I think. Yeah. And you know, I when I was a little kid, I used to rewatch Monty Python and the Holy Grail and learn all the lines and practice with my friends. So like, yeah. I can kind of sympathize with that. It does go, it goes overboard on the number of references. But I think that that's that's part of the conceit of the book is that you know these people are not living their lives in the real world; they're living through these stories, through this pop culture. One other thing I liked about the book is that I think Ernest Klein does a great job of creating a sci-fi setting or a futuristic setting that feels entirely believable to the point of this could happen very soon. I feel like we're even starting to go that way. I don't know if you guys have ever looked around when you're waiting for elevators and everybody's on their phone. And it's like, this this wasn't the case five years ago or whatever. We're that podcast now. Well, no, but it's <laughs> every day I think we get closer and closer to the people in Wally that are just in the pods watching their iPads. And, you know, this is kind of what it is in this book. So yeah. they describe it on the back of the book as the Matrix meets Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And I think that's, <laughs> pretty, that's pretty, a pretty apt pretty comparison. Accurate. Yeah. yeah. So I think the, the setting is is very believable and, and very good. And the, the biggest thing I'm going to say about this book is that I found it just addictive. It's been a long time since I've read a book like this, where I was like, oh, I'll just read one more chapter. I'll just mm. read one more chapter. Like last night, I was finishing it. And I literally was like, so tired. I was like, I can do one more chapter. And then I fell asleep in the, during the chapter. Oh, um, very cool. 
there's something about the quest that just really gets you involved. And because you know, you know, there's like three steps to do, there's three gates to clear, and you can see where it's going and you want to see it get there. Mm-hmm. I can come up with some tiny orcs, some tiny negatives. Goblins. Goblins, orclets. I think the movie, the Spielberg version, fixes some of the problems with it. In terms of, it makes a lot of sense why they changed it for the adaptation, because a lot of it isn't necessarily cinematic. Like, a lot of it is beat this Atari game. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily fun to watch or recite the lines from war games, you know, (laughs) and that might not be fun to watch. So, you know, they added like a road race or, you know, they made it inside The Shining instead of inside war games to make it more fun. So that I guess I could say is a critique in terms of they were able to make it better with the movie. But I just think the world is so interesting that it makes up for it. Hmm. And I think there's a little bit of manic pixie dream girl yep about the love interest um that i had i had i struggled with that yeah when you say a little i would say a ton a ton yeah i did read this a decade ago so maybe i'm misremembering i mean it's very much like the love interest is a guy a geeky guy's fantasy Mm -hmm. um yeah i wouldn't say there's a lot of like character development in this if I, I remember know. correctly. I, I, I think I disagree. I mean, oh, maybe I'm misremembering. Character development is hard to say because so much of it is internal to Wade because you don't know who the real characters are. You just see their avatar and you see what they present to the world. So he has an understanding of what they are like and he has guesses about what they're like in the real world. But really, all he really knows is himself. And I think you get a good sense of him. Mm. Um, and then I think part of the intrigue is finding out how much of it matches up with reality. So I don't know. I think I just kind of tried to see it as as sort of like a romance or like a fun rom-com where like yeah at the end of the day you just are rooting for them to get together and you can't think too much about how realistic either of these characters are i think you might be better at doing that than me because i think it frustrated me more yeah i think i wanted a little bit more real characters but then i think i don't know if i was reading this book in the spirit it was meant to be read in i enjoyed it and i knew it was going to be like a candy book Mm -hmm. but i think i still wanted more out of it i remember being a little bit frustrated about the characterization some of the dialogue to me was pretty cringy um the idea was great yeah like you know the idea is so solid it's so much fun I think I'm remembering now, I think I gave it three stars. Okay. I I mean, I can see that. I think in terms of like mouthpiece for the author, it's very clearly like Ernest Cline's like fantasy. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, and and I kind of am concerned about him if he really knows all of the references in this book, because there is a lot. You say concerned for him as three people or four people participating in a podcast about our obsessive obsession about him. But there are so many references in here. That's true. I don't want to spoil my research. But yeah. I think he knows all the references. Oh, dang. Yeah, I think so. Um, but I will say, and this leads to the quote I have, I think he might sort of know he has a problem, and yeah. part, part of the themes are critiquing that. So I found the book addicting, and there was one point where I stopped myself from reading because I read this passage, and I thought, I got to go outside. All right, uh, this is page 198. Uh, Wade is describing describing his sort of his rig, his virtual reality setup and how fancy it is. Once I had the suit on, I ordered the haptic chair to extend. Then I paused and spent a moment staring at my immersion rig. I'd been so proud of all this high-tech hardware when I first purchased it. But over the past few months, I'd come to see my rig for what it was, an elaborate contraption for deceiving my senses to allow me to live in a world that didn't exist. Each component of my rig was a bar in the cell where I had willingly imprisoned myself. So after I read that, I thought, I'm just escaping my life in books. I got to get outside. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. So that's our last episode, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah, so I mean, at the end of the day, I found this really addictive. And is it Man Booker Prize winning? No, but <laughs> I have to think like, how dare you? You know, I think I'm going to give this five stars because wow, Whoa. I just sped through it and I haven't gotten excited to read a wow. book like this in a really long time. I mean, better it's, than Anna Karenina, oh, folks. Better than Anna. You heard it here. <sighs> I will never tire of that joke. Oh, no. I mean, maybe it's really like four, but I, I just I got to go with my heart. I got to say five. And I'm curious because when Dylan picked it for me, when Dylan chosened it, you immediately, Toby, were like, oh, no. I thought you would feel the same as me. Oh. I thought you'd be frustrated at the same things I was frustrated at. And I thought you'd, it would, you would come around to three star. I'm shocked, honestly, that you give it five stars. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I thought you were leaning towards four. This is better than Anna Karenina, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we're also amazed, too, because you kind of missed not only the book, but you missed the book, its runaway success, the huge backlash against it. Where like people are comparing it to basically Twilight for dudes. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. yeah, basically. And then the movie coming out, and then the mo- controversy around the movie, and then that all settled out. So like, I, mean, I saw the movie. Yeah, oh, but, I didn't realize you. But like, oh, yeah, you, in terms of participating in like this kind of pop culture ness thing, maybe <laughs> yeah, I might. we are reviewing this book like <laughs> you know five or six years too late. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, maybe I don't know. Maybe I just had the right amount of expectations where some people liked it, some people hated it. I think that might have hurt my experience because mm-hmm. I was reading it when it was white hot. Yeah. It was like, it's so much fun. It's You're going to love it. It's so great. And I was like, this is not good. <laughs> I guess. I mean, I, I gave it five stars. Maybe, you know, wait a bit and forget that I said that so you don't have too high expectations. Oh, yeah. Way to blow it for everybody, Bailey. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, I have the same critiques you have. I understand that. And it didn't dull my enjoyment of it. Yeah. So. Fair enough. That's what it is. All right, so uh, Ready Player One by Ernest Cline, five stars, five um, little Mario stars. Uh, Andrew, do you have any facts on Ernest Cline? So Ernest Christie Cline was born on March 29th, 1972 in Ashland, Ohio. Uh, Growing up, he was a huge fan of Star Wars, video games, and Dungeons and Dragons, though this was discouraged by his religious family. This is from an interview um, with the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast uh, hosted by David Barr Kirtley, referring to Dungeons and Dragons. It was forbidden because my family was very religious. My mother had gotten a hold of this book from someone at church called Playing With Fire. It was fear-mongering about all the dangers of role-playing games. And she thought that I was really going to try and collect spell components and cast spells and that it was meddling with witchcraft. I was meddling with powers I didn't understand. That was part of the appeal. It was almost like heavy metal. I remember sneaking my Dungeons and Dragons books in and out of my house under my jacket. <laughs> I love that. I love imagining, like, that. having played Dungeons and Dragons, imagining actually doing the things in Dungeons and Dragons is pretty hilarious. <laughs> he worked in IT and initially wanted to be a screenwriter. He wrote the film Fanboys, which I don't know if anyone saw, um, no. which went through a long development process and ended up being produced, uh, starring Sam Huntington, Jay Baruchel, and Kristen Bell. He has said in interviews that part of what pivoted him to novels was actually the process of getting this movie made and seeing it transform into something that was like totally outside of his control and not necessarily his vision. I wonder how he feels about the movie. I think that comes into it. Uh-huh. Uh, so the rest of this is almost all from that same interview with The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy um, about the process of that and going into Ready Player One. I started out wanting to be a screenwriter, and then, although it took 10 years, I actually got fanboys made. And it was so disheartening to have my work warped and mutilated to the point where there are still scenes in the movie that make fun of the characters or make fun of Star Wars fans. I'm still proud of the movie, but when I see it, I just see all the things that they changed and things that could have been better but were out of my control. 
I'd always wanted to try writing a novel, but seeing that lack of control really inspired me to sit down and try to do it and stop writing screenplays. Starting out a screenwriter and trying to get scripts made, you're not the low man on the totem pole, you're the part that's in the ground. Your script is just a blueprint. But adapting your own novel is completely different because the story already exists the way you intended. My screenwriting career has a new lease on life because now I will always write the story in fiction first and then the story can have its own life. And he did write the screenplay for Ready Player One. Oh, that's good to know. And then just a little bit about the process of writing the actual novel. Um, He wrote Ready Player One while he was still working a full-time job and says, everything you want to happen happened to me once Ready Player One got out into the world. There was a bidding war over the book rights and the very next day over the film rights, so my whole life changed in that 48 hours. For a book that I wasn't even sure I could get published, I wasn't sure you could have Mechagodzilla fight Ultraman in your book and not get sued. (laughs) I will say, I remember, this is one of those books, like every once in a while a movie comes out or a book comes out and you hear like the log line or the the conceit of Mm -hmm. it and you're like, oh, oh, that's so good. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah, and this is one of those when I heard it, I was like, oh, Genius. And then finally, he lives in Austin, um, and aside from novels and screenplays, he's actually an accomplished competitive slam poet, um, representing Austin on the national stage twice. Wow. He has published a second novel called Armada, and he has an upcoming sequel to Ready Player One in the works. A sequel? I didn't know that. Is it called Ready Player Two? I don't think there's a title assigned to it, but if it's not, he's definitely just leaving money on the table. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Great facts, Andrew. Good facts, Andrew. Thank you very much. I would not have thought that. Me neither. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, speaking of, Andrew, do you have a game for us? Yes. I do have a game for us today. It is called Deddy Player Fun. Whoa. Deddy Player Fun. This is a, I think that's one of your best titles. This is a good pun. Good job, Andrew. Thank you very much. Um, So the conceit will sound familiar to you, but there is a little twist. I'm going to give each of you a name. Mm Mm-hmm. That name is either a video game, a cemetery in Texas, as they both are either from or live in currently Texas, Mm -hmm. or, and this is crucial, both. So there are three options this time. And I know what your next question is going to be. It is going to be a buzz in answer. However, the person who does not buzz in first can steal. So none of this just Mm -hmm. buzzing in, Toby, because you want the first crack at the answer. That would still that would still work. I just still get the first crack. It would, but if you get it wrong, that means the person after you has yeah, a 50% has a chance, chance versus yeah. a 33% sure. chance of getting it right. I like how you're engineering the games around my trigger right <laughs> now. <laughs> I was tired of cheating, Toby. <laughs> it's not cheating. I was playing by the rules. I was tired of going against the spirit of the game, Toby. <laughs> okay, so how do we buzz in? You buzz in by saying, hey, y'all. Yeah. Hey, okay, y'all. Hey, y'all. And right. if, well, here's, a, here's a twist. If we both buzz in at the exact same time, the person with a deeper southern accent gets it. That sounds great. Let's hey, go y'all. with that. Okay. <laughs> you two have literally never buzzed in at the exact same time. So we'll see if that comes up this time. Um, we are going to play to four. We're going to play Ooh, to damn. four. All right. I'm ready. Player, player one. one. <laughs> hey, y'all. You're player two. <laughs> hey, y'all. Right. So player again, two. this is a video game, a cemetery, or both. And I will say that I took off tags like cemetery or memorial from the cemetery okay. thing to not truly make it obvious or colon the video game (laughs) all right galaga uh buzz hey y'all yes bailey that's a video game that is correct bailey has one point i thought maybe it was both I was, I, I was like, I know it's a video game, but oh. Gala, like, I could see like a place called That's the Gala- brilliance Galaga. of this conceit. <laughs> All right, Andrew. <laughs> Rattan. Hey, y'all. Toby? Cemetery. 
That is correct, Toby. Ooh. Ooh. All right. Katarina. Uh, hey, y'all. Toby? Both. That is incorrect. Bailey, would you like to steal? Yes, I would like to steal. I was going to say both, but I'm going to say just uh, cemetery. Yes, that is correct, Bailey. Katarina is just a cemetery. I apologize if there's some very deep indie gamer who's created a game called Katarina. I could not it find it like online. Yeah. Well, that's why I picked it. <laughs> good job. I, I guess I'm just saying good job, Andrew, over and over again. <laughs> Stranger. Uh, hey, y'all. Toby? Both. That is correct. Stranger is both. Yeah. Ah. I was like, there's definitely a video game called Stranger, and then I bet there's a... Uh, yeah, yeah. Where is Stranger Cemetery, do you know? In, in uh, Texas? Stra- Stranger, Texas. In Stranger? Ah. Oh, okay. Don't be a stranger, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you both have two points. Congratulations. Ooh. Stardew Valley. Hey, y'all. Bailey? That's a cemetery. Toby, would you like to steal? Yes. I know there's a game called Stardew Valley, um, but I'm not sure if it's a cemetery as well. I'm going to say both. That is incorrect. As far as I know, no. it is just a video game. No. Oh, it no. D- uh, I knew it was a video game. Dang it. Okay. All right. Goliad. Hey, y'all. Toby. Cemetery. That is correct. Yes. Uh, good All one, right. Toby, Toby was- has three points. He could be going Ooh. for the win at any moment. Toby's making weird hand yes, gestures. Yes, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he's going to get the final answer and get Andrew's vast fortune. <laughs> <laughs> Klondike. Uh, hey, y'all. Bailey? Video game? Toby, would you like to steal? Hmm. Both. That is correct. Toby is our winner with yeah! four points. Oh. Bailey, yeah. Bailey, you lost yes, four yes, to y'all. two. Klondike is both things last game of the year still the winner well good job good game andrew it, it is crazy whenever you propose these ideas like oh it's it's gonna be a cemetery versus a game it's like oh this will be easy and then never is mm-hmm. good well, job well it's almost picked. as though i spend an inordinate amount of time of my life trying to find two <laughs> elements that are very similar <laughs> i mean that's just what you do when you're looking for the easter egg in the oasis so uh, now's the time on the podcast where we get books chosen at random from our shelves it is The Choosening. The Choosening. And, and these will be our first books for 2020. How the exciting. The old bente bente. I love it. Well, <laughs> that makes sense for 2020, which is going to be a crazy year. Because, Toby, you have number 48, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. Ooh. Wow. I'm surprised you haven't read this, Toby. This is a book I've read and Toby hasn't read? Whoa. Yay. That's crazy. <laughs> I am hyped. I loved Sometimes a Great Notion, and my only qualm with it was that it was kind of long. So a shorter version of Ken Kesey book, great. I'm hyped. And we should probably give you a shorter book then. So Uh, Yeah, give her a nice short book. That's why you're going to get number 26. The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. Dumas. Oh, yes. I yes. think this might yes. be the longest yes. book I have on my list. Oh, Bailey, you're going to love it. Uh, this book is so, so good. I have it on my list because of you, Toby, because you told me it was so good. Did you so, get the translation? I'm gonna, I want to look at which translation you have. I got like the Barnes & Noble basic one. Well, I hope it's good. I reserve the right. Um, maybe you guys can support me on this, that if I'm not getting into it and I think it's the translations problem, I might like get yeah. out a different translation from the library. I, I, I second this because 
I loved this book so, so much. And I was like, wow, it's so good. And then I like looked up information on my edition and they were like, people were like praising it. They were like, this translation is so good. I will look up which one it was and send it to you. Okay, cool. That'd be helpful. Awesome. Well, okay. That is a really long book. However, I'll have a little bit of time to read it over the holidays. It'll be okay. It's fun. It's, it's fun. fun. It's, it's fun. a fun book. It's just an adventure book. You're definitely going to have a good time. I just don't know if I'll be able to finish this one summer by the time you finish that. <laughs> That's like a 200-page graphic novel. I don't know. I just Toby. don't know. <laughs> it might be an adventure book, but does it have a Gundam in it? <laughs> no. No Mechagodzilla. No Gundam Wing. Oh. <laughs> so then, speaking of the time that we have coming up, next week on the podcast, it is as you know, New Year's Day, which is our anniversary of one year of the two-read list. To celebrate, we are going to do a end-of-year recap, a one-year anniversary show, where we go over our stats of what we read, what we liked and didn't like, give some oh. awards to some books. I was told it was just a clip show. I don't have anything prepared. Oh, well. Uh, um. You have a week to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's on the first, and then the next week we will have a mini-sode, um, and then we're back. It'll be this one summer, with Andrew's reading, and I will finally finish The Count of Monte Cristo. And have your revenge. Yes. Thanks for listening to The To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the to read list podcast. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the to read list podcast and on Twitter at to read list pod. And if you enjoyed what you heard here, please go on to your podcatcher of choice and rate us five stars. Please also leave a review. Um, if you are so moved, it really does help us uh, gain visibility amongst those platforms, and we would really appreciate it. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, tell your friends. I know you guys aren't telling your friends. Some of you are like, I want to tell my friends. I'm too shy. I don't want to talk about podcasts because it's my secret shame. Too bad. Tell your friends. You like this podcast. You listen to it. You're here at the end of the episode, so it means you like it. So tell your friends. Also, <laughs> thanks for listening. <laughs> it was very aggressive. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. Happy holidays, and see you next week. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books, books. books. books.